I'm a co-host of the space, which means that Scott, you're not making it. Sir. I literally just messaged them to co-host Rand so he doesn't say anything about not being co-hosted, and there you are. Good, see. But that, that means that, that means that, that means that you're not getting co-hosted because Mario Mario's team yeah. always co-hosts Mario. I, that, that's fine. I think we get more eyeballs with him. Your thumbnail today was awesome, by the way. Which one? I don't know the one where you look like you're in the Matrix or something. Oh, thank you, sir. Like, I green, a, you, I, like you have a green angled chart, and it looks like oh, you're you. holding. Thank it was you. really cool. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Made me look. It made me look. Thank, thank you, sir. That's very cool. I think I did a good show today. Altcoins to erupt. Even I did a show that had an altcoin title, so you know I must agree. Yeah, Since you, every you, one you, of my you, titles is Bitcoin cool today, Bitcoin cool tomorrow, Bitcoin cool yesterday. Those are my titles. You, your, your thumbnail game is getting better. I mean, I, I know you've been very, you've been very, what's the word, uh, conservative in the past. Reluctant, okay. yes. Yeah, it's getting, it's getting better, bro. It's getting better. You're starting to play the YouTube game. A little, a little. Your mouth is opening a lot more, you know, like, like you know. Mouth is still closed, permanently closed. Nobody wants to see me with my mouth open, man. Literally nobody anywhere, ever. Where's Mario? Is he going to join us today, you think? Maybe. He said Grace he us with his presence. He said he would. Seems like Solana is kind yes. of the topic right now again, right? I mean, a little price action and... Uh, Remember I said yesterday that there's, it's not the price action, it's that there's a Jupiter airdrop tomorrow and that Jupiter airdrop is going to bring huge liquidity into Solana. Um, and I think everyone's trading the airdrop narrative, which is uh, this, this whole Jupiter airdrop narrative. Maybe uh, we'll wait until uh, we get more people, but I would love you to break that down for me because literally I have only a very superficial understanding, but basically no idea uh, how that works or what's happening there. So Jupiter is the, um, Jupiter is like the biggest DEX aggregator on Solana. And what they've done is they, you know, they, 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 they for all the users that use the platform, they're doing an airdrop and it's a massive airdrop. It's like, I mean, we, we don't know exactly what the, the number is going to be because it's, it's, all, it's all dependent on, um, on what the on what the, the price opens at, but it, all indications are this thing's going to open at a seven or eight billion dollar market cap. Fully can, you, can, you, Roman, can, can you can you explain when you say someone's trading the, the airdrop narrative? I've never done that, and I feel like I'm one of the minority now. What I don't understand though is how could this strategy work? Shouldn't the market be efficient enough that it's always priced in? So if you have ten thousand dollars worth of Solana, there's an airdrop worth of a thousand dollars, then then the Solana will go up ten percent. Then the benefit is no longer there. How does that whole strategy of an airdrop narrative still work? Where you hold a token to get an airdrop, then so, you sell it. Let me let me make it simple for you. So right now there is, if you look at the entire Solana ecosystem, right, the entire Solana ecosystem is valued at a number. I don't know what the number is, but that's what the number is. Tomorrow, or yeah, tomorrow they're going to airdrop. And I don't know what the number is, but call it they're going to airdrop $800 million or $500 million or $200 million on the Solana ecosystem, right? So now all of a sudden, what you've got is you've got money that didn't exist before. Everyone, everyone who's on the, the, the chain now gets automatically richer. So then the question is, what are you going to do with, with your money? And, that, and what, what people generally do is they end up buying either Sol, some of them sell their Jupiter because they think it's too high. And then they buy, they land up buying Solana or they land up buying other Solana projects. And so generally, 
we saw this with Blur, we saw this with Pissed, we saw this with, uh, I've got all the airdrops listed, but um, uh, you, so yeah, so every time that these airdrops happen, we get a pump primarily in the underlying ecosystem, but generally we also get a market pump when there's airdrop, when there's such big airdrops. And I thought we were in crypto because money printing was bad. No, as Jerome, as Jerome Powell said, as Jerome Powell said, uh, 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 crypto, not Jerome Powell, it's just Brad Sherman that said, uh, crypto bros print money whenever they want. And, uh, you know, we also print money whenever we want. Cobra coin, mongoose coin. Yeah. Uh, Brad, Brad Sherman. But I mean, this is just, uh, money being created out of thin air with nothing behind it. Right. <laughs> I mean, uh, this, is, this is not money being uh, created with money, nothing about it. We're bringing a new exchange onto the ecosystem, and the exchange is actually creating value for its users because, you know. Yeah, it's money. It's money. It's money backed by an actual product with utility. Exactly. It's not like literally money printing. It's actually just adding value to the ecosystem. If, again, I'm not the guy that trades airdrop, you know, narratives and shit. I'm not to do it, Scott. But I'm saying the concept itself is not like just coming out of nowhere. It's not like a meme coin that's being airdropped. It's something with utility behind it. It's a product with utility. Those tokens have value. So they should. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's, it's almost like, it's almost like you can think about it about like an economy and in the economy, you don't have a certain um, uh, industry or a certain company. And then you add a new company to the economy and it starts to add incremental value to the economy. Yeah, but usually those companies don't uh, randomly distribute shares in their company to the general public for fun. Yeah, but if they're doing it, if they're, it's not for fun, it's building a community. But if they're doing it, would you say it's printing money out of thin air? Or do you say it's not? It's actually distributing value. Uh, distributing, I'm going to use it. Distributing value. Exactly my point. Because, uh, yeah, the, the value was all owned by the devs and the DAO. And now tomorrow with the airdrop, what they're saying is the value is now going to get distributed to its users. So it's just a distribution of value. That makes sense. Yeah, that, that How, makes sense. They're decentralized. Think about yeah. Think about, Scott, the liquidity infusion that happened when Uniswap did their drop. I mean, it's going to trickle down across everything. I'm still holding that one. Oh, yeah. Still holding my $1,200. And Ryan, from that one. before Scott digs into the agenda, like one question I had, can you just give us a quick overview on Solana in general? I remember that it was dominating the narrative just a few weeks ago, still killing it. Still killing it. Uh, highest DEX volume in, in, the, in the industry. Solana DEXs, Eclipse, um, uh, uh, Ethereum DEXs, uh, Solana also. So let's look at a couple of metrics. Solana DEX volume eclipses Ethereum DEX volume. G great, um, uh, great metric to look at. The next metric to look at is that USDC uh, trading volume on Solana bigger than USDC trading volume on any other chain. Um, why? So why is this happening? Because Solana is one year with no downtime. So that's a, it's a critic say, oh, but downtime, downtime, downtime. One year with no downtime. Then um, two is that it's cheap and it's fast. So if you want to, if you want to trade stable coins, you want to trade on a reliable network that's cheap and fast. Solana's, Solana, Solana is your number one choice. It used to be Tron, but it seems like Solana is now overtaking Tron. And the third thing, and probably the most important thing, uh, is that. So no, the four things. So, so the third thing is that you also have um, deepen projects, all the, ma the major deepen projects, which is the um, decentralized physical infrastructure projects, which is like where you take physical infrastructure and you create a decentralized version on it 
uh, exactly like, uh, for example, um, Helium, which is a, a, a decentralized virtual mobile phone network. Um, so they all being built on Solana because of the speed and transaction costs. And then the last part, the last point, which for me is the most exciting point, is that when people trade meme coins on Ethereum, the problem with trading a meme coin on Ethereum is that the gas fees are so high that you can't actually trade in and out of meme coins like a trader. Because you're not, if you want to buy $100 of a meme coin, but you're paying $28 in gas to, to trade that meme coin, and $28 in gas to get out of that meme coin, you can't get out. And so what Solana has created because of their low fees is that you're getting these actual meme coin intraday jobbers and traders, high frequency traders on meme coins. And with this whole meme coin explosion, you've now got them all trading on, um, uh, you've now got them all trading on Solana. So like they've created a new industry of, of jobbing meme coins, of trading meme coins. And the UI, if you look at the wallets, I mean, look at Phantom and how easy it is to swap in and out. There's yeah. very little slippage. I mean, it's it's really revolutionary. Hey, Rand, Mario, we have Phantom, Go ahead, go ahead, Rand. Yep. Phantom, by the way, is uh, the most downloaded crypto app. It's actually eclipsed uh, Coinbase. That's wild. Yeah. We have pa we have pa we have Pavel here. Literally, he and I just happened to be talking, and you guys mentioned you wanted to talk about Solana, and he's launching MixMob on Solana, but very deep in the ecosystem. So he can probably also speak to why you know, given the uh, oh, and you had Bluezell first, obviously, which was not on Solana. So you you had a choice here with ecosystems. So probably the person who actually made that decision is the best one to speak to this. I've just brought up Pavel. Pavel, you did you hear what said? Hey, hey, yeah, GM, GM, everybody. I see a lot of familiar yeah, faces. Yeah, we've got, we, we also, you see Pavel and Sunny here. We've got two Solana, and we're going to dig into the FOMC and Bitcoin. Uh, Gunny, you got up here, man. I messaged you. Awesome. Yeah, Great. I thought he's here too. Yeah. a little late. Thanks. Pavel, Mike is yours. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I approach it on, like, on the product side. So for Mixmob, obviously, we're a game, um, you know, built by, on Solana, backed by Solana. But why, why, but why Solana, Pavel? Why Solana and, and when did you make that decision and how's that decision turning out? Like, why is Solana the, the blockchain of choice? So the team, Simon and the other co-founders in June 2021, they were checking all the stuff. These guys worked on Halo, Battlefield, all these things. And they're like, the only system out there that gives the consumer experience, the usability and the speed that a gamer is going to want and is used to is Solana. Uh, he's, they're like, there's nothing else even close to do the stuff. And even to now, uh, even the things that we're doing on the NFTs, like, you know, you can remix them, do this stuff. The, the cost is low that you can get creative. Um, we were able to run an in entire incentivized test net with a token live on chain. And because of the soul bound, it could stay within the system and run like a real token. We were able to test a lot of token economics out. So you're saying, but, 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 but essentially, is it the speed, Pavel, I'm digging into too much detail, but the, the speed seems to be the main benefit. And, and uh, but were you worried about uh, that choice in the middle of the FUD about a year and a half ago? Oh, all our investors were just like, hey, you got to get off. What are you guys going to do? Um, and we're like, for us, the challenge was building a game is just really hard. So you got to balance the gameplay. We're like, to start thinking of other chains right now and the game's not even balanced, is double risk on. So let's just get the game balanced, stay on the same chain. If it works on that chain and it's still not going, we can we can then go and switch to another chain. But we focus just on that. 
But even realistically, throughout the year, Simon would, I mean, he was on a, we did a call with Raj and we we're telling him, he was like, and I asked Simon, I was like, what about Arbitrum? He was like, not fast enough. Matic, not fast enough. He goes, it's, honestly, he goes, it's only Solana. And um, just the usability of Phantom, what Ren was saying was, it's just so fluid what you can do on usability and cost issue and speed. Um, and they end up working, that bet end up paying off. Um, I, I don't know if you saw, I don't know if you guys, Mario, I don't know if you saw the new game on Solana, which is called GG. I don't know if, you guys, if you've seen it. I think it's like one of the coolest things that I've ever seen. And I, when I say coolest things that I've ever seen, I don't actually only mean on, on in crypto. So how the game works is you've got to think of it almost like a, a Pokemon game, which is an augmented reality game where you can basically walk around your streets with your phone and collect what they call G-boxes, right? So, so that in itself is pretty much like, you can say very much like Pokemon. The twist that they've got is that if I'm playing and you're playing and Scott's playing, then users can bet on which one of us is gonna win. So it's like playing Pokemon, but actually having like a betting market on, on who, the, who the users are gonna be. So they've launched that. They've launched that now on Solana. The, the the domain is gg.zip, um, and I mean, like, this is actually one of the coolest things that I've seen. Not even, you know, even remove the crypto element of it and forget about the fact that you're probably collecting. I haven't done too much research, but I think you're probably collecting NFTs or, or whatever you're collecting. Um, but the fact that you can now bet on who's going to collect boxes, who's going to win, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, I think that that's like that's game changing. Like that that's going to be imagine like. Like you, you could, you're literally betting on your mates collecting GG boxes in there or G boxes in the area. But have you have you have you looked at have you looked at L two alternatives to Solana? Obviously, you mentioned a few Pavel, including Matic. But but you, have you Ryan Gunny Pavel looked at L twos as well? One interesting one to consider is the side chain. It is supposed to be twice as fast as Solana, and I think it's considered an L one. So it is an L1. It's a Cosmos. It's built with the Cosmos software developer kit. Stay is part of it's, it's built using the Cosmos SDK. It is probably as fast or maybe a little bit faster than Solana. So I think they have a point three hundred and forty millisecond uh, time to finality or time per transaction. Um, also, um, the difference between Stay and Solana is Stay allows for for um, dApps that are built in EVM, in other words, Ethereum virtual machine to actually be, uh, you can transport your, your code theoretically with very little effort and move from Ethereum to say. So from that point of view, I said it say is, you know, when you want to talk about Ethereum killers, I think Solana is, it's a different language and it, it's a different skill set. But if a, if a DAP wants to port from Ethereum to another chain, say is probably the easiest chain for them to port to. The downside was saying, I don't see as much of a downside is in order to achieve their speed, they have less validators. So theoretically, it's slightly less decentralized, right? But, you know, like for me, I don't think we need, I think this decent, this whole decentralization thing is very much an obsession. Um, and once you get to a certain point of decentralization, I think the, you know, like, unless you're dealing with like crazy, crazy, crazy shit, like maybe Bitcoin type store of value type stuff. I don't think you always need like to be so decentralized that, you know, like it, it just, so I think there are pros and cons. 
full disclosure, I'm an investor. I'm an investor in in say. I think it's an amazing, amazing chain. I think one of their founders is an ex Robin Hood uh, guy, and they're they're all about speed. So that's the that's the or is ex Robin Hood or ex Nasdaq? One of the two. I don't remember. Pavel. Yes. One one thing. I mean, you can go into the technical speed. Might be just like differences between everything. I think the one thing that what grabs us and people forget is Solana actually has a really cool culture and community. I saw it in Breakpoint in Lisbon, and you saw it all through 2023. It was basically it was a team, the basketball team that says they don't believe in us, the <laughs> spirit. And if you go to these events, you can tell like in Ethereum, EVM crowd is like Silicon Valley. But, you know, vests, stuff like that. Solana is like Los Angeles. Subcultures, they're into entertainment, what they wear, how they dress. It's just more of a vibe. And if you're going to do entertainment products like music, gaming, these type of things, I think Solana is the brand that also cuts across. So it's not just on the technical aspect, it's on that. And I think if you're aiming at, you know, the 15-year-olds and up that are coming up, that's going to be the place that they probably gravitate towards that, attracts them to do build products on it's like the apple thing like hey that's the cooler one to go to between all these technologies so that's a part that a lot of people yeah. miss on the technical side i agree with you pavel i think that that's really well um said but a lot of people do choose to build on solana also for the technical side and not just for the cool factor of gunny you're literally lifting your mic because you know i'm talking about you that was my segue <laughs> hope you enjoyed it thank you scott and thanks for having you may me. go yeah. you may go Thank you. Um, yeah, you know, I've, we've been building on Solana. We've been building Hero Network on Solana since um, early, early 2021. And, you know, the, the way that, that we looked at it, obviously, like coming from a, a derivatives trading background and wanting to build derivatives trading infrastructure, um, you know, kind of how do we rebuild the the um, the guts, the infrastructure of, of something like the CME or ICE uh, on chain, um, you know, pre Solana, there was there was really no blockchain that that you could do it on. And uh, once Solana came online, once we saw Serum uh, built and saw that you could run an on chain order book uh, that was actually usable even in the early days of of Solana, uh, it it was pretty groundbreaking. And you know, it, it's interesting like. If you kind of look back to the beginning days of, the, of Solana and even like the Solana pitch deck, um, Anatoly, you know, his his pitch was was Nasdaq settling at the speed of light, which was really referencing Solana's ability to provide low cost, high throughput solution that could, you know, that could ultimately be a blockchain that you could build upon to compete with, you know, some of the larger incumbents. Um, you know, over the long term, and, and obviously the the size and scope of the of the derivatives uh, market, you know, six hundred plus trillion dollars is is a prime candidate for disruption. And uh, you know, our our team, it, along with with some of the largest proprietary trading firms on the planet, which we we who invested into, you know, became part of the Hero Network community and um, provided engineering uh, uh, engineers to. Our, to our uh, project, uh, you know, we were able to build what we built, and now um, this infrastructure is uh, is live in market, and um, there are several applications building on top of it, 
um, all sharing liquidity. And, and, and again, these are things that are truly only possible on Solana. I, I too went through a similar thing through the whole FTX and, you know, and, and um, uh, the, the knock on effects that Solana received from that during the last year and a half uh, prior to, you know, kind of the turnaround of, of everything. And it, it was not easy. There, there were, you know, most, most investors, most VCs, most people in the community, you know, turn their back on it. And I think we were one of the few teams that were left that just were saying, like, look, at the end of the day, you guys could call me, you could say whatever you want, you can say what you think you need from your ivory tower. But, but ultimately, we came to build this infrastructure, and it would truly is only possible and doable on Solana. And that case still holds true. Um, I do think one thing that maybe Rand, you spoke about it yet or not, um, there, there is a new validator client that is coming online uh, somewhat imminently um, called Fire Dancer that was built by the, um, it was kind of brainchilded by the uh, the person who the kind of the chief, I think they call him the chief science officer or something at Jump Trading, the guy who really built their ultra high speed uh, trading network. And um, that, is, that validator client, Fire Dancer, uh, is going to be improving the throughput of Solana, which you know, right now runs in the thousands. They, they, you know, the claims are are fifty thousand. Uh, has capacity for that, and um, it hasn't been tested to that level. But, but I know Fire Dancer is running on the order of of into the well into the hundreds of thousands, um, which is greatly going to increase the the capabilities for the amount of transactions that are put through. You know, in four hundred millisecond slots, and um, I think again, it's going to be another step up. It, it is truly. You know, while Pablo was talking about it, it's a very cultural community at the at the um, kind of at the consumer layer, I, I would say that it is a very, very when you get, get into the inner workings of it, it is a very developer rich community. And I think that is a lot of what got it through its, you know, its kind of rough period. And now I think we're really gonna see it. Yeah, I'm, I'm going again the comments comments speak for themselves. I'm going through the comments. Solana has a a hell of a community. We never get comments like this whenever we're talking about Ethereum or any other protocol. So, uh, you know, it kind of supports your point there. Uh, but Scott, um, yeah, I'll let you kick it off with the agenda. We've got a pretty sick panel. Um, so the mic is yours, man. You're muted, Scott. I muted you because I forgot your co- you're not a co-host. You got to unmute, Scott. You got to press uh, the button. Th- the button thank you. You have, to, you have to unmute me so that I can unmute. See, you got to put it like I was pushing the button repeatedly. Smash, I was smashing the mic button, which is like smashing the like button on YouTube for anyone who's wondering. I don't know if you ever smashed a mic button, but I was doing that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the, the original topic before we got the uh, Solana guys coming on was that we were going to talk about FOMC tomorrow, what's happening with Bitcoin price action. Obviously, I think we've seen a pretty nice uh, recovery here. Uh, and Bitcoin, it's trading now. I'm trying to open my, my screen, but trading uh, back above 43,000, actually 43,600 right now. Wow. So pushing towards 44,000 uh, already. Um, and, you know, Solana was kind of the, became the topic because off the lows for Solana, it's up uh, almost 30%, you know, in, in about a week. So it looks like the market generally uh, has shrugged off the GBTC selling, which is seemingly uh, flowing. And I had uh, James Saford on actually this morning uh, on my show to talk about the, the ETF specifically. And he said that uh, we saw massive inflows uh, versus outflows yesterday for the first time since basically the first week. I think now uh, BlackRock ETF sitting 
at 2.4 billion, which is a, a, astounding market cap in a couple of weeks. Uh, Fidelity not far behind at 2.22, and each of those did over 200 million in net inflows yesterday. So really, just getting started here. Um, I guess uh, if we're talking just for the really quick ETF update, you guys probably noticed that yesterday uh, Google Ads policy finally changed. Uh, we saw that happening in the lead up to the ETF approvals. They were going to allow this marketing and immediately Franklin Templeton, BlackRock, Van Eck, notably are all over the top of Google ads for anything Bitcoin related marketing these ETFs. And we know that that's just going to uh, massively increase with time, especially as these platforms actually allow people to buy them, which isn't even happening as of yet. So I think a lot of tailwinds right now still, even after this dip, in my opinion, I think the charts look good. Market looks good, uh, and I'll probably be wrong. <laughs> That's usually what happens: is get humbled. But um, you know, Bitcoin trading right here, almost at forty-four thousand when it was down uh, in the mid thirty-eights. I think really, really nice bounce, giving the market confidence, and probably leading to those inflows. Sort of the idea that the the best marketing campaign for Bitcoin is higher prices. So I think once we saw the price start to bounce. I think we really start to get more inflows and, and more interest in the space. I mean, that's sort of my top line take. Uh, oh, and then uh, is one more news story, obviously, that the fee war is still happening with the ETFs. Invesco Gallery, uh, Galaxy just filed with the SEC to reduce theirs to 0.25. I think they were at 0.39. So you're still seeing these companies race to the bottom. <laughs> no chance of being profitable on these, by the way. Uh, racing to the bottom on these fees just to, to attract some of this AUM that's inevitably coming in. Did that cover it, Mario? What else you got? Yeah, man, you know, I'm the one that's been off the grid for two days. Well, we've got a pretty sick panel. Travis would love your thoughts. Michael, uh, Mike, Dave, would love you to jump in on this one. Um, I mean, all, all the Solana conversation is super interesting. Um, you know, pretty incredible that that project and ecosystem was able to come back from, you know, the, I think like the the Sam Bankman freed overhang. That's, that, you know, that's a good thing. Um, and it seems like the, you know, that that competition of what Solana is going to do versus Ethereum is probably going to be one of the kind of headline situations for, you know, the coming bull market over the next, you know, two years or so. Um, and then kind of what some of these other, uh, but, but do you think, uh, Trevor, do you think we'll have different uh, blockchains for different use cases or do, do you think we'll all congregate to one blockchain uh, with different layer twos and multiple use cases? So we'll all congregate similar to TCP IP. Um, I, don't, I, I don't know. I don't think it doesn't strike me that this cycle is going to be the cycle that we get like that much of an answer to that, because I don't think this cycle strikes me as a cycle that we're going to have a step change in uh, use cases or uh, use cases that drive a step change in mass adoption. Like I just don't, I don't see things on the immediate horizon that are going to like just lead to a, 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 a big influx in end users for actual use cases for people using crypto. Um, you know, and if people feel differently about that, um, you know, curious to hear that, uh, that opinion, but you know, crypto gaming, like it's pr probably going to do something this cycle, but, um, you know, I don't think it's going to be like a step change in user adoption. You know, NFTs, I think are still floundering. Um, they're the general form that they take right now doesn't strike me as sufficient to gain mass adoption. Um, 
you know, and like just DeFi primitives, not that interesting to people. Um, no deep, I would say DPIN, uh, is probably the general vertical that I think can actually show real user and can you just briefly and can you briefly briefly explain for the audience what you mean by uh, what DPIN is yeah de- decentralized physical infrastructure networks which is just kind of a catch-all term for you know using a token economy to incentivize real world behavior or activities of some sort and, I, and people think of helium which is mentioned previously helium is kind of the the poster child for this which helium is objectively one of the most successful crypto projects ever um it is you know they ship like you know i don't know 1.3 million pieces of hardware these hardware units and then these hardware units are now being used to create a uh 5g mesh network and late last year helium partnered with t-mobile and now you can get a 20 dollars a month 5g wi-fi plan uh through t-mobile powered by helium and uh crypto just has this is an incredibly short list uh that crypto has of projects that are like actually delivering on like a real world value proposition like a 20 dollars a month 5g wi-fi uh platform uh, uh uh program and so uh you know there's other ones like render for example render is another one that people talk about this is this is uh you know, decentralized GPU compute you can use to, um, uh, you know, like render literally. Um, and there's some other ones. There's this thing called Hive Mapper. That's like this, uh, uh, you know, GPS mapping, decentralized. You know, you know, incentivizing people with tokens to, to uh, you know, put a GPS mapper piece of hardware thing in their car and drive around. And you get tokens for mapping and this sort of deal. So people are like trying trying these things out and you know, render and helium in particular, you know, I think show some real user adoption statistics that are rare to find in crypto. Uh, and that has people rightfully excited. And it's easy for me to imagine those statistics being, you know, one of the real bright spots in this coming cycle, you know, and I think just to be balanced in the pitch here, my assessment of the token structures of these things is that it is not clear to me that they accrue value in a sustainable way. Um, and they remind me kind of a lot of Axie Infinity for people that were paying attention to Axie Infinity last cycle. And Axie Infinity had a, a token structure that was not sustainable. It was a token structure that led to uh, kind of facilitated a big bubble being created and then the bubble bursts and then you know, you have this massive crash and, and, and the whole kind of token economy stops working. It strikes me that these tokens uh, for these deep end projects are probably structured the same way. Would love to hear arguments, you know, against that view. Uh, you know, but I think in the short term, you know, they're probably set up to really outperform um, and, and to pump. And it would be my base case that a basket of deep in names would outperform the market broadly over the course of this year. Uh, you know, and then sort of these chickens coming home to roost about these, these token structures, maybe not working that well, you know, that's going to be a problem for a later day, basically.
Yeah, Michael, I see you jumping in. I want to go to Claudia afterwards. Yeah, Michael, go um, ahead. first of all, uh, Axie has had a, a big comeback, and uh, I was wanting to mention also in terms of like alternatives to Solana for gaming, uh, Ronin, which is the same uh, Sky Mavis developer team, um, <clears throat> many of them are based here in Puerto Rico with me, um, has been on fire. They uh, they gained like a million users for their EVM you know, gaming chain. I mean, I'm seeing all sorts of developers wanting to develop on it now. So I, I think that there isn't one blockchain sort of super cycle. I think it's several super cycle, several super cycles that are going up and down independently um, that then add to sort of like a, a linear increase. Uh, I, I believe the last number I heard was we've now passed a half a billion users. You know, that's pretty close to like, we will get to a billion by the end of 25. And that's no longer a niche market. Well, I would just like to say there's, there's no way I believe 500 million users. There's absolutely no way I believe that, but you know. I think they count anybody who's got a token of anything. I mean, it's got a Satoshi of anything, but I've seen those. Well, no, no. I mean, they're they're probably doing something with wallet creations and then using some heuristics that are probably badly off because uh, there's an insane power law distribution of wallets relative to actual users. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I guess we'll just have to see who, who has real um, metrics on that. Obviously, there's wallets as well as... Uh, uh, as well as that, but I mean, other than power users, I think many people only have one wallet um, for for each uh, currency. At any rate, um, if we're going to pivot to the uh, to the Fed, I think that it's very important um, that it looks like we're going to end up uh, in the green for the month since we're over forty two two fifty, and we'll probably stay over forty three for the day. So that's five green months in a row. And so traders, you know, like those things. Um, and uh, we're going into the having, and I think that the um, uh, the fact that GBTC, as we've all mentioned, is uh, seeming to like you get past the dump and the uh, and the SBF uh, bankruptcy dump. Um, I think we're you know I think we're being overly pessimistic about you know where it's going to go in the next uh, month or two. I I still think we're going to well, be at least forty five at the halving. Yeah, Michael, as you mentioned, we have FOMC tomorrow, and we happen to have. Um Claudia with us, who's a former Fed economist, so probably nobody better to speak uh, to what we might see from the Fed and what's happening with the economy than her. And of course, Mike uh, McGlone here as well. So I do want to shift a bit to the macro and talk about FOMC tomorrow. Claudia, what are you expecting? Great. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. Sorry to pivot you all to something a little more boring of the Fed. Uh, so one thing I would warn everybody tomorrow, and this goes for me too, be very careful of your confirmation bias. So all of the action is going to be at the press conference. The uh, statement is going to be as boring as it ever is. So, But we have to listen very carefully to Jay, and we have to be very careful not to hear Jay saying what we want to hear. And and the Fed is renowned. I mean, I have a very good Fed speak decoder ring, but at this point, I, I mean, I really have to focus too. They're always very subtle. They do not want to box themselves in. They're likely to signal pretty well that the cuts are or the cuts are what's up next right we're they're not hiking anymore but it's like duh right inflation is already moving well towards the two percent jay said multiple times they will not wait until two to cut and yet i mean they're basically going to be there because they're dragging their feet uh i think it's useful to think about what the fed should do given their mandate, given the economy, it's also very important right now to think about what they're likely to do. So when I look at the macro economy that is really in a good place and we're getting very close to their dual mandate, they should be cutting. 
I mean, frankly, they should be cutting tomorrow. They are not going to do that. They should be cutting in March. I don't think they're going to do that either. I, my I base case has been May at the earliest, and there are definitely members of the FOMC that have been signaling past May. Jay is the spokesperson for the FOMC. He can only go out so far. I think I still think May is very reasonable. I think that's what will be. Markets have kind of moved away from March. It's more like split down the middle. Uh, people that are like diehard March, I I suspect they're going to be disappointed tomorrow. I agree. I agree. There's no way that they reduce rates as quickly as March. But I do think that they've got to think about the fact that they've got a $1 trillion a year debt interest debt repayment. Interest rep- interest repayment on $34 trillion worth of debt, which is growing exponentially. So, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I, I think... To me, there's been a very, um, I think, dangerous rhetoric out of the Fed. I hope to God Jay does not repeat it tomorrow, though I think he will, where they talk about, oh, the economy is so strong, the labor market, GDP. We have the luxury of time to wait and see that inflation really, really is... 2% going to 2 The problem is in financial markets, they do not have the luxury of time. The Fed, I mean, you're talking about the balance sheet, but the high interest rates, they went high. It was unexpected. That put a lot of pressure on various parts of the credit markets, including the banking system. They've largely held it together, but that doesn't, they don't necessarily have the luxury of time there. And the next time, the next, you know, Silicon Valley Bank or whatever it is that blows up, the Fed might not be able to get it under control as quickly, and then it comes back and hits the real economy. So I think they're being very short-sighted or very siloed in how they're thinking. So hopefully I hear something from Jay that's so, a little bit so, like what you just said. So how does Powell tomorrow, or when he speaks tomorrow, how does he reconcile the following? you got markets at all-time highs. Markets at all-time highs make consumers spend more because more people are in profits. You've got a GDP growth rate of 3.3%, which is it's much higher than anybody expected. I think we saw that we saw that uh, in the last GDP reading. You've also got the potential of much higher, not, not much higher, but significantly higher inflation on imported goods because of the stuff that's happening in the Suez Canal. Like you, you can't, you know, like I know you can say America's. A little bit more immune than Europe to it, but it's, I mean, there is a huge cost implication to goods that are coming in and out of the States. Um, so all, all those are like, you know, under normal circumstances, you should consider keeping in, maybe even pushing interest rates higher, given the fact that there's extra, extra inflation, the economy's over, the economy's clearly overheating the markets, or certainly the markets are overheating. How does he reconcile it? Right. So on the stock market, the what's called the wealth effect. So the translation from people get more wealth, higher stocks into what they spend is extremely low. I mean, I was a lead on consumer spending. And part of it's like the inequality piece, like rich people have a lot of money. They I mean, they spend a lot, but that increment in their stock portfolios is not a big deal. Uh, But there's something there. But that is one. The Fed does not care about the stock market. I mean, like, just, you know, knock yourselves out. Like, it's as long as something doesn't, like, blow up, it's not a big deal. I mean, they do pay attention to it. But that's not a reason for them to hold off on cuts. The Everything about what the Fed does this year is about inflation. So the risk, and I would expect this to be mentioned tomorrow, are the disruptions in the Middle East, particularly as they've hit into commodity markets, the shipping lines. Not only is the U.S. more insulated, the demand for goods 
is much less than what we had when the supply chains broke down and inflation took off and firms are not as able in the U.S. to pass on these price increases. So I don't expect that to be a big deal. It is a risk. The longer it goes on and if it were to spread in the Middle East, then that's, yeah, that's a problem. Right. I mean, that's a problem on a lot of dimensions. Uh, the thing is, is the Fed, I mean, GDP, this was a good thing Powell did. I was thrilled to hear him finally say this. They, The FOMC no longer says, considers, thinks that you have to have low GDP growth, like below trend GDP growth, 3% is well above trend. They no longer think you've got to have below trend GDP growth to get inflation down. So that's saying, hey, we're okay with this. Productivity is high. There are reasons we could have growth. And yet you outline all of the risk factors, and these are things that will be mentioned. They're things that I think the Fed, for history reasons, the 1970s, Arthur Burns, I think there's a lot of reasons they're going to drag their feet this year, and they're going to grab onto anything, right, to do that. Um, but inflation, when inflation comes down, it's too, like, they're done. That's the dual mandate. Inflation, 2%, and unemployment, low. And they should be out of the way by then, in terms of rates being, a, like, kind of a quote-unquote neutral Place. And what about the Fed um, the tightening of the balance sheet? Do you, th- do, you, do you still think that, you know, the the, the buybacks and, and all that, I mean, do you think that the, the Fed is still going to is, is still going to continue to tighten their balance sheet? I'm less of an expert on the balance sheet. And yet, and, and the person to listen to on the FOMC is Lori Logan. And she's given some talks about this recently. Like she is absolutely point on the balance sheet because she ran the desk at New York Fed. Uh, and it's very clear from what she's thinking and has talked about. And some other FOMC members have hinted at this too. They're gonna they're gonna ease off on quantitative tightening. It is likely that's the one that I could see happening in March. I think they're gonna get the balance sheet. They want the balance sheet. Like they want no one to pay attention to the balance sheet. Like they want to do all the policy through uh, the Fed funds rate and. I mean, they get it. The, the quantitative easing and quantitative tightening, if we never use those tools again, it would be amazing, right? Like they just cause all kinds of havoc. Um, so I think they want to get out of that game as quickly as they can. I mean, they'll be slow and deliberate. Like the Fed doesn't do anything quickly unless it's a crisis. But yeah, no, that's just, and that's where I worry too, that the risk, the biggest risk from the Fed comes on the financial side, not on the real economy. And uh, yeah, the balance sheet is a piece of it, but I do think they're going to start the, you know, easing up on the quantitative tightening pretty soon. And Lori, that was very much, I think she was laying the groundwork for that. Peter? Yeah, uh, one quick comment, and I got to run to the doctor's appointment. On Fed rates, you look at the December 2024 sulfur contract. Secured overnight financing rate. It has already built in six rate cuts of 25 basis points. And so, yeah, we can talk about what the Fed's going to do, but the free market has already uh, cast a vote on that. And that's six basis points. Now, whether they do it in six different meetings or they come out with a whopper of a 50 or 75 basis point cuts, I personally think December 2024 SOFR contract is, is way wrong. And really want to be short there because I just don't see six cuts in the next 11 months. And I got to run with that. Cool. Can I piggyback on that one? This is uh, Mike. 
Yeah, the key comments from Claudia, much appreciated. Confirmation bias. That was the lesson of the commodities last year. The, the, everybody just expected China would come back and U.S. production wouldn't. And it was failed. The confirmation bias right now in cryptos is so extreme. And Rand top, touched on it. Markets are all-time highs. At, at this point last year, Bitcoin was cheap. GBTC was cheap at a discount. And the S&P 500 was at a 25% discount to its all-time highs. It's the exact opposite now. So, and as Claudia says, um, it's just this silliness of right now 150 basis points priced in of cuts for, for the next year has just changed. And that's the world that we have, have seen. Rates used to go, you know, they used to go down on the, um, on the elevator and up on the escalator. Now it's the opposite. There's no reason to go raise hikes rapidly, yet the market's prices are so much extremism. Now I think you have to take a look at it and be very careful. So first of all, I'll tilt over from a commodity standpoint. This is a severe deflationary recession on a global basis. Virtually all commodities are down and heading lower. You look at natural gas, it's the same price as 33 years ago. Crude oil is just catching up. Grains are dropping. Industrial metals dropping. Only commodity that's really going up is gold. That's a global deflationary trend. And I just want to point out the key thing I noted in our morning meeting was the Chinese 10-year note yield at 2.45% is the lowest in two decades. So every morning you come in, we have to know what's going on in China. It's basically doing what I remember being working for Japanese firms 30 years ago. It's imploding. And, okay, we have to have stimulus out of there. So that's a deflationary bent uh, on markets and potentially a wealth destruction, clearly having wealth destruction. And the major source on the planet, as we saw from data recently from um, economic growth in Europe is basically stagnant, is the U.S. stock market. And it's an all-time high. So I look at this as just a little bit of risk, just a little speed bump, just a little bump in the road of this you know, this rally since the Powell pivot that left a gap in the S&P 500 around 4,600 is should be expected. And and as what Scott said earlier, I think the key thing you need to expect from this space for RIAs, your traditional investors on the who have done so well in the stock market, for them to add an asset that essentially has a three beta to the S&P 500, a two beta to the NASDAQ, and I can check this on a quarterly basis. I've checked it every year going back to, you can do the last two years, last three years, last 10 years. It basically has a three beta. You have to be careful. They're adding a high, to, to expect them to add a high volatile, high beta acid um, that's, not, um, that's not negatively correlated is a problem. And particularly, it's going to become more negatively correlated and, less, and have less volatility every day that people are involved. So that's when we have to be careful about Bitcoin. The good thing about it is we've had this massive hopium rally to 50,000. It was too extreme. We've had the dip to 40,000. That was pretty swift. And now we're just in the range. I think what's happening now is the market's waiting on the next move from the stock market. It might come from the Fed. And what Claudia says, they're not going to be there to save you. There's no reason for the cut to cut rates fast, yet everything they've done is fine. Rates, inflation has collapsed. And part of the reason it's collapsed, it just went up too fast. And that's what's happening to commodities. So the way I see this right now is um, for the um, expectations for massive inflows to ETF to happen, you have to see what your traditional investor and money manager on the planet wants. First of all, it doesn't have earnings. So that's where Gold has a problem. That's where commodities have a problem. But you have to see a lack of a high volatility, high beta performance to the S&P 500. So this is why I, I like to end there. Is you need to see the beef. Last year, Bitcoin had a great year. So did the stock market. Now we're at record highs, as Rand says, if the stock markets can start trickling down or actually go fill that gap of 4,600 and the S&P 500 e-minis and Bitcoin can outperform, that would be your first sign. 
My suspicion is the risk is it does what it typically has been doing in history, and that's continued to be just a high beta leading indicator for the stock market. That makes sense. Go ahead, Dave. Well, we all know I disagree. Uh, <laughs> Anybody who watches uh, Mike and Dave and, and myself on Monday knows. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so, a, a couple things. Uh, the notion of Bitcoin as a three beta of the S&P is horseshit. Uh, the correlation in 2023 was borderline zero. So, yeah, uh, Bitcoin's more volatile and anything that's an infant asset. And for those who haven't heard me say this, uh, I always make the my mental construct for Bitcoin is it trades like an option on its adoption of digital gold or beyond, which, you know, Scaramucci was out this morning talking about, well, you know, if it gets to half of digital gold, it'll be, you know, about four hundred thousand dollars, yada, yada, yada. I mean, at the end of the day, you're talking 10 to 20 X is the asymmetric upside if Bitcoin gains adoption. So the other statistic I love to look at is the hash rate is the, the price divided by the hash rate. The all-time high of 60, depending on how you want to measure it, let's go 65,000, uh, was at a hash rate of around 150 terahashes. We're now at 500, so more than 3x. So realistically, a new all-time high uh, in based on a understanding valuation of Bitcoin based on where its network is would be over $180,000 this cycle. Do I think we'll get there? I doubt it. Uh, that seems a bit extreme to me. But at the end of the day, that is divorced from many other things. Uh, now, it is true. Yeah. Why is, why is 180000 a bit extreme? I mean, if you think about all the previous cycles, uh, are you saying that that we're going to get less than a two and a half X from the previous high, then that would be the end of the cycle. I, I personally think there is a very real chance that the four year cycle is going to die a death. Uh, we have a grand total of three data points, which for as a quant that is so far from statistically significant. It's insane. I think the having cycle, I, I kind of equivalent equi equated to one of my favorite books, although I don't really love the TV series, A Foundation. I think, you know, I think of Satoshi as Harry Seldon predicting a monetary policy that will work. But I don't see the need for a four-year cycle of people saying, oh, it's going to go up to 180, then down to 50, then up to I – mean, you know, it could happen. But as you get more and more towards adoption, a switch will get flipped. I don't know whether it will happen in the next year two years, five years, but I'm fairly willing to, to, and I have made the bet, that over the next 10 to 20 years, yeah, I think we're going to get there. I think Bitcoin will demonetize gold. But for this show, we're talking about what's going to happen in the next 18 months. And while it, it wouldn't be unbelievably surprising for me to see it get to that level of exuberance, uh, I, you know, as a, as a trader, as an investor, I tend not to want to be hyperbolic. That's all. But no, it's definitely possible, Mario. That that that's what I was saying. But anyway, the point that I was making, you know, when Mike talks about uh, what's going on, I, I tend to believe that there's a lot of merit in the notion that the stock market is irrationally high. And but the thing that Claudia said before, and I thought it was brilliantly stated, was that you have to look at who owns and where the wealth effect is coming from. Right? If it's rich people who have who don't need to sell, uh, then the question is, what will happen to the stock market is interesting. People who have been doomers over the last year, and I'm not going to lie. I mean, I've been fairly 
neutral to to bearish on the stock market through this whole rally. I just haven't been shorted, uh, but I've been bullish on Bitcoin and crypto. Uh, is for different reasons. I just think that when you look at it, it's an uncorrelated asset, but it really trades like an option. And so when you do that, when you look at it with that mental construct, you have to ask yourself the question of what's going on. And the, the narrative of the ETF is so much more powerful than people are giving it credit for. You know, at the end of the day, you, we now have two, if not probably the two most important financial institutions that talk to retail. There's one that isn't, which is Vanguard and, you know, whatever, but Fidelity and BlackRock now trying to orange pill the entire uh, investing public. And, and the message, if you've ever read anything Fidelity's written, they, they, they get this very well. And BlackRock, Larry Fink has been telling it, is this is an uncorrelated asset that allows you to hedge against your distrust in the government. Now, if anybody believes that that narrative won't resonate, given what's going on and politically, given what's going on in the economy, I, I think you're 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 trying to pick up pennies in front of a steamroller. I don't know what what the right analogy is, but that that is a very powerful narrative, and that is what is about to start being pumped into the brains of you know effectively most of the investing public. So I, I really do think that is a very big deal. And to underestimate that, or by looking backward at correlations from 22 before, because 23, there was no correlation, is a problem. That's why I disagree. David? Yeah, I'm going to piggyback on, on Dave, uh, although not knowing what he was going to say. Uh, the, on, the, the lack of correlation and the ETF education, coupled with the fact that the overwhelming majority of investors are chasers. Um, and we have an election cycle that I think is only going to go ahead and either make this market stronger or even stronger than stronger in terms of, you know, the choices between Biden and Trump. Um, I, I think I, I'm hoping, frankly, that the use case narrative doesn't come to the forefront this year, because on the basis of just the Bitcoin ETF education chasing, you know, trying to replicate to go back to Mike McGlone's point. Frankly, I think investors are going to try to find an asset class to replicate last year's gains. They're not going to find it in the stock market. They're going to need to look to a new asset in order to go ahead and do that. The fact that this new asset is just minted with an ETF, it's uncorrelated, and they could go ahead and chase it, right, while it seems to be going up now, um, I think is going to drive Bitcoin to, I, I really believe, well over 100,000 in this year. And then, you know, in terms of, the fundamentals, certainly I'm in this for more than just, you know, the hype and the push up in price. You know, I think use cases are yet to come. I, I hope that they don't come to the forefront until 2025. And then we get, you know, an even bigger leg up then. Um, I, I just think that, that the, this, the circumstances have been, you know, set up so well at this point. Um, I don't mean to over, um, you know, over pump this, but the circumstances are incredibly strong at this point, especially for the United States in terms of the economy, in terms of, you know, no one thinks a recession is in sight. Um, but at the same time, you know, we, we've reached the top on fixed income yields. We're probably going to go down from there. And, you know, how hard we go down from there and therefore the, the additional pump to the equity markets, I don't think is going to be all that great. And so, therefore, I think that this asset class, particularly Bitcoin in this year, is going to provide 
the only outstanding returns available in the market. And that's why I think that we're going to see a lot of investable dollars get channeled towards this. You're hired to market uh, crypto for us this year, David. Man. Good job. Thanks, thanks. We need a new PR agent. Travis? Yeah, yeah, just a couple of things. I mean, for, so, for, so for Bitcoin, I mean, I just would not overthink this right now. Uh, we just got spot B BTC ETFs, and that's unlocking safe access to Bitcoin for literally many trillions of dollars that hasn't had access to that previously. Um, we do have a halving coming up. And more importantly, the Fed is likely to cut rates multiple times this year and stocks are at all time highs. And like uh, Peter Brandt had to hop off. But like, I, I, in my opinion, from a TA perspective, stocks look like they're going higher as well, too. And like the having is probably the least important one on that list that I just gave. And I think that it's kind of ironic that. Uh, we are now shaping up for another halving year, which is just like 2020, where you're not going to be able to answer the question, like, how important is the halving for price? Because it's going to be obfuscated by um, central bank actions, which, in my opinion, are much more important than the halving at this point. So that it's like in 2012 and 2016, Bitcoin was so tiny that the halving did really make a difference. Um, the, that supply also, obviously the stock, to like, like the stock to flow, the, um, uh, the emissions rate was much larger. Uh, and now you're just getting to smaller and smaller emission rates relative to, uh, the circulating supply of the coins. And so that aspect of in and of itself is, is kind of diminishing the importance, but like 2020, you had a halving, but the halving happened right after the fed ripped three trillion of QE in six weeks. And it happened right before Paul Tudor Jones, one of the most famous macro investors of all time, wrote a letter calling Bitcoin the fastest horse. And so the ensuing price action that you had on Bitcoin, like assigning that to uh, the fact that the supply rate got cut in half, uh, like there's not there's no way that you can do that. And it's funny because like the setup is is the exact same in 2024, where this having is sandwiched right in between Bitcoin spot ETFs, a tremendously positive unlocking of, of, of capital flows. And right after or right before, you know, likely multiple rate cuts from the Fed. But and an election year. Yeah, an election year. Um, and the summation of all of that, in my opinion, is essentially a free walk to all time highs for Bitcoin. And what I mean by that is like, I don't think Bitcoin like, I don't think you have to worry about how Bitcoin is going to garner the inflows to get to all time highs. I think it's just going to kind of happen because of the mostly because of these ETFs combined with rate cuts. You know, if, if, if the Fed was embarking on a rate tightening campaign right now this year, uh, you know, the sort of the polar opposite of what they're doing. It would be a totally different setup in my view. You know, there'd be way, way more risk around it. And I think you can, you know, reasonable minds can disagree about the timing of when we're going to hit all time highs. First half this year, second half this year, first half next year. We can have a conversation about that. And then I think reasonable minds can also disagree about how far beyond high 60s we're going to get 
or 70s, 80s, 90s, 100, 120, 140. You know, it's like we can we can argue about that as well, too. Um, I would be on the lower side of that. Um, but I think more or less you're going to get a free walk to all time highs in Bitcoin. We've never had a setup like that before. Um, and then further to that, I think that we're about to run the exact same trade back for Ethereum for the exact same reasons. You're going to get spot ETH ETFs. Again, we can argue about the timing of it. Uh, it's actually kind of interesting that there is such a, a wide swath of disagreement about the timing of spot ETH ETFs. Having them come sort of earlier is certainly not priced in right now because a lot of people are saying, oh, it's not going to happen this year. It may not happen at all. Oh, it's a very long slog. You know, we'll see what happens there. But but I, but I think that ETH, for the same reason, like more or less is going to have a free walk to, to all time highs as well, too. Never, ever, ever had a setup like that before where the top two headline names in the crypto space kind of have a free walk to all time highs. And in my opinion, uh, that's going to lead to a magnitude of shit coining unlike anything we've ever seen before. Um, and it's not going to be, uh, with the assumption that it's going to come with mass adoption. I think there's a lack of pretense, uh, at this point in the cycle about any of this shit doing ever anything or ever going to do anything. And that's just, if, if that's true, that's going to make this cycle, it's going to get really wacky. You just laid out my entire base case. I don't know what else we can even say, Mario. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> I agree with that so thoroughly. The ETH trade that uh, humans are going to human and we're going to see the biggest cycle ever. I, I, that's really exactly how I'm thinking about the uh, next year and a half. It's going to be wild. That's a good place to end it. But yeah, you've been saying this for months. So I'll give you credit there, Scott. Um, but yeah, I think we've covered everything. It's been uh, jumping from Solana to FOMC, back to Solana, back to FOMC. Um, anything else to cover? Oh, man, I think we nailed it. That was really great. It was uh Cool having Claudia here since she was actually a Fed economist to lay out what we could possibly see tomorrow. I don't think we've uh, had that before. That, that was I think we should, do, we, should do, we should do a big ETH versus Solana space. I think that will be the next, uh, plan for next week because those get very contentious. Reminds me of the, the Bitcoin You just want people versus, to fight. You just want people yeah, to reminds fight. Me, cool. Reminds me of the big Bitcoin versus everything else spaces. But I think we can... Uh, yeah, yeah you do literally a Bitcoin versus just choose. Uh, we can do that too. Just get a Perfect. couple uh, laser eyes on stage, anyone else, and just let them all yell at each other, and we can like WhatsApp in the background. I'm, I'm right. down for that space. I knew all right, guys, thank you. Tomorrow, thanks everyone. Bye.